Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. I am your host, Tom Gowker. Tonight, I am able to check off one of my bucket lists for one of my favorite artists of all time, Joe Lovano. I totally recommend checking out the YouTube version of this interview where it's uncut and uh, Joe has a lot to say. My plan was to ask the 20 questions. Uh, Some are supposed to be ridiculous and kind of just see where he goes with it, but Joe was able to spin every single question into gold. It was a lot of fun to listen to. Joe Lovano is at home and he's in New York uh, promoting his latest release, The Garden of Expression. It's it's the second release on EMI and it's a follow-up to the 2019 Trio Tapestry. All right, Thomas, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for doing the interview. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad it all worked out. Today was a good day. It's nice up here in New York. I actually have my door open in my studio. It's like 60 some degrees here. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? It's odd. (laughs) Amazing. It feels unnatural, but we're loving it. (laughs) So this is the game that we're gonna play. We're gonna do 20 questions with you. Uh, They're gonna be, some of them are gonna be hard. Some are gonna be easy. I think that you'll be able to handle them anyway. The last public concert that you had was at the Keystone Corner in Baltimore. It was uh, March 13th, just basically a, a year ago from today. Do you remember that experience? Of course. It was the last concert with my quartet uh, playing for an audience. And it was Friday the 13th and the 14th of March. Playing at the Keystone Corner uh, is such a great venue. And Todd Barkin, who's the whew, put it all together down there, you know, in Baltimore, jazz master, he had the Keystone, original Keystone Corner in uh, San Francisco, which I never really played at, but I was there often during the late 70s uh, and into the 80s when I was on tour with the Woody Herman Band. And uh, the original Keystone Corner was an amazing place, man. I heard Dexter Gordon there and Bobby Hutchison and Max Roach and so many people through the years when we would play out on the West Coast with Woody. But the club in Baltimore is fantastic. And I was so happy to have the gig down there that had been booked for uh, some months prior to the those dates. And Friday the 13th was also a very hip, famous tune of uh, Thelonious Monk. 
that uh, has this incredible melody. That just repeats over and over again, the whole song is just that phrase, you know? quoting that tune throughout the two nights. And then it turned out that those were the last gigs that uh, any of us played for an audience. The next day, the 15th was the kind of the start of this lockdown that we went through here in the States, which is still going on. Do you have your shots yet? You know, uh, my wife Judy and I just had our first dose. And later this month, we will get our second. So yes, and I'm feeling much more optimistic. And uh... the one thing that in the jazz world, there were so many people who passed with the COVID, we were unable to really celebrate their lives. It was just seemed the one after another after another. And it was, it's crushing almost. Uh, we lost a lot of people this year. Been very difficult. And just in the last few weeks, uh, losing Chick Corea. Mm -hmm. and Milfred Graves and Ralph Peterson. Uh, I've been uh, attending many Zoom gatherings, funerals, celebrations. Frank Kimbrough, another really great pianist, close friend. Uh, we, could, we could list all kinds of folks, man. Lee Konitz and some, some, of, some of the real mentors and masters in the music and then also uh some folks that uh you know really made amazing contributions to the music you know from last year you know from uh even before the pandemic from january uh it's been it's been amazing time you know i feel we we really have to celebrate and represent uh all the folks that uh are dear to us, you I lived in uh, Philly for 14 years and Bootsy Barnes was the house mm. guy at the uh, Ortlieb's Jazz House. And I would say if there's anyone <laughs> I saw, you know, the most was, was Bootsy and I right. at, at least 50 times. Wow, and that's beautiful, man. It was, a, it was a party every time because the doors open, someone walked in with a, an instrument and they got right on the bandstand. And he, you know, it was one, one after another. It, it was the reason why I got into jazz because I thought jazz was fun. I didn't think it was heady. I thought it's a- It it's is a, fun. Oh, I know, it's but I'm just saying like- Art. The, the way he ran that ship down there, 
It was Not, it was nothing but a party every single night. Yeah, you know? I knew Bootsy a little bit and played with him once at the Hollywood Bowl for uh, the Playboy Jazz Festival mm -hmm. that Bill Cosby was hosting and put together different bands every year. I was a member of one of the bands with Bootsy. That was an incredible concert. Man. We had a, we had a joyous time together. But you know, like jazz is a congregation of folks. Yeah, and it's the congregation of the, whoever's playing in the band, whether it's a trio, duets, up to a, big bands and things, and the audience, the whole room, I feel is a congregation of folks. And uh, if you have that kind of celebrity, you know, a celebratory feeling, you could play how you feel, and everything is cool. You know, yeah. that's that's the beauty of jazz. What's your favorite album of all time? My favorite album? Yeah. Uh, that's really hard to say when you live in the library of the sounds and spirits of the history of the music. Uh -huh. uh, different, different artists. It's not even the album. It's the player, you know? I would say, like, um, the album Soul Train of John Coltrane is, is one of my favorite albums from the mid-50s, along with uh, so many others, you know? Miles Davis's whole catalog, everything, yeah. everything yeah. that had a Miles Davis name on it. The one thing about Miles is that you you can fall in love with an album and there's so much more to fall in love with and then you come back to it and then you can fall in love with it all over again because it, uh, it's such a, a wide variety of sounds it's very similar to well you. you know when you have players that have a way of playing mm -hmm. it's all one their whole their whole catalog falls into this beautiful place like uh, like a duke ellington or an ornette coleman or miles or coltrane or sonny rollins or bill evans uh, you know, Keith Jarrett, it's uh, when you're really listening to music that is uh, totally from the heart and soul of the player, not trying to recreate what someone else did. It's uh, beautiful. Do you still call musicians cats? I call everybody cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think I just think it's funny. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, Lester, Lester Young, there was a certain vernacular and certain thing that happened in the, within the world of jazz that uh, it's, a, it's a language and, and the personalities that emerged through the years that really made an impact like, like a Lester Young, not only in his playing and personality and music and uh, life, but the, yeah, the cultural, social elements that come in on it. You know,
when you think like Dizzy Gillespie has the the personality to personify jazz, just the way his 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 whole soul was jazz. The he he created the language and the look and everything. Well, you know, I mean, uh, everybody focused on Diz uh, because because of his personality and a way of playing, and he was such master and he was an amazing humanitarian yeah and he he brought so many elements of life together in the music and the culture and uh he was one of the first to really embrace and not not the first to embrace but he was one of the first focuses in the world of music that uh really paved the way you know for so many things to happen in in uh in music, in the rhythm, and um, the union of uh, all things, you know. Uh, yeah, and Diz, uh, you know, from Louis Armstrong's influence uh, and uh, Roy Eldridge, and I mean, he he paved the way of a style. His, you know, he had his own style. Going back to what we previously spoke on, you know, uh, when you really weigh into playing music you create your own way of playing and dizzy did that you know and uh, followed through and was the the guiding light for all of us man. no matter what instrument if you're hip to diz then you he gives you so much to reach for on your instrument and uh in the music and it crosses all all barriers and uh borders limitation Like Art Tatum did. Art Tatum inspired Bird and everybody to do what they did, man. They were in the room with him. And uh, his amazing facility and imagination and uh, love and passion to play the way he played uh, was an inspiration. It still is today. If you're hip to it, if you don't run away from it, a lot of cats run away from that. From Art Tatum, the Riverside box set, it's amazing. Well, his whole life, yeah, his whole life, man, everything. The one record with Ben Webster, he did a quartet record with Ben Webster that was amazing to to feel how Ben played and feel how Art Tatum accompanied and played. Uh, that that uh, that was a, a that's a beautiful lesson in uh, creating music together. Mm the way Ben Webster and Art Tatum played together. Incredible.
how do you know what hat to wear? You have you uh, you have <laughs> you have Kango hats. You got the bowler, the the uh, the 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 beller. Like what? When do you know? Is it a, a, a season? It's a year. It's a vibe. When do you know? Ah, uh, you know, like uh, <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. You know, I think like the different uh, the different hats you wear as a player each each kind of composition you're in uh the mood of the band whoever you're playing with is like you come you know i try to come at it from an angle of uh, listening and creating music together for the moment so whether you're playing a real swaying kind of a tune or a real funk tune or an open free-flowing piece of music or a, a ballad and then a super slow ballad, you know, something that feels like it's standing still, you know, those are all kind of different hats you wear as a player, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in fashion, you know, it's about, uh, for me, my international touring through the years, which started with the Woody Herman band in 1977, uh, my first international touring, brought me to some incredible places. And, and I try to, I have a collection of instruments from everywhere around the world and, uh, and some clothes and hats also, you know, feeling the culture of where you are and embracing all those things. Playing with Paul Motion through the years, who was a real hat person, uh, got me into that. Because he Paul would travel with one little bag with like some some different clothes, but he had like a lot of hats. And every night he wore a different hat, man. He could just change his hat and have it have it be a totally different vibration. And uh that was inspiring for me. <laughs> you took a, a throwaway, goofy question, and you really developed that into a cool, a great answer. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, I like to improvise. And thank <laughs> you for giving me a direction. That was like playing on a certain kind of tune or something. Pretty good. Yeah, I liked it. Now, your uh, Carmen <laughs> on this album is a, a a buddy of yours in Cleveland. If I would interview him today what kind of story would he tell me that something crazy that you did back in the day? You're speaking of Carmen Castaldi, who plays drums on my last two releases of Trio Tapestry. Yeah. He's also on uh, my recording, Viva Caruso. I had four drummers on that date and Carmen was one of them, along with Joey Barron and uh, Bob Meyer and Jamie Haddad, who also I grew up with in Cleveland. Uh, what kind of story would Carmen tell? Mm -hmm. Well, we met during, uh, I guess, my late uh, high school years and started to play together and then went to Berkeley College of Music together in 1971. Uh, we had some apartments together and uh, explored a lot of different crazy things and music. I'm not sure what he would say. But uh, one thing I would say, you know, my dad played tenor saxophone. 
and was one of the leading players around Cleveland in his day, where I grew up. He was born in 1925. Coltrane and Miles were 1926. You know, he was in that era and generations of the music and the jazz. And uh, Carmen was one of my friends. He was like my dad's favorite drummer of my friends, people I was playing with in my generation, because he loved the way Carmen played brushes. And uh, Carmen might have told, might tell a story about playing with my dad. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that, though. Uh, Carmen is one of the most creative people in my life and I'm really happy that after all these years he lived on the west coast um, when I came to New York in 1976 he, w he went out to California and Las Vegas and uh, was 
out there working, doing a lot of things, and then came back around the Cleveland area in uh, around 2000 or so. And I'm really happy he's, uh, he's more on the East Coast now. We can play together. The Trio Tapestry came out on ECM Records. You're normally on Blue Note. Did you feel that this was a good opportunity for you to kind of change it up with the, the players and the sound? Well, you know what happened? I, I, I had three seven-record consecutive deals with Blue Note Records from 1991. And uh, it was amazing that uh, it just kept going on and on. It was amazing to have the opportunity to work with the great Bruce Lundvall and Michael Kuskuna and then Don Waz uh, the last few years. I was with Blue Note, and uh, I think it was just time at the end of that last uh, contract period um, to just open the space and try to move into other directions, not really in the music, just in business and everything, you know? Uh, I had an amazing uh, time releasing 25 or so recordings on Blue Note during that period. And uh, it really established a lot of different bands of mine. Because through those years, I didn't just record one record after another. I, I, I have like three non-net recordings. I have maybe four or five quartet sessions. I have a few trio releases, some duet releases, some quartets with Hank Jones, like three records with Hank. I really had had an opportunity to establish uh, not only different repertoires for different bands, my street band and my ensemble that features my wife, Judy Silvano, on uh, vocalese and uh, with brass and woodwinds. Uh, I had a real opportunity to, to really develop in a lot of different ways as a composer and as a, a presenter of music and an opportunity to put some bands together that are still happening today. Like I don't have just one working band. I have maybe four or five different concepts and ensembles of personnel and repertoire for each group, you know, that I'm really proud of. And it's, it's carrying on today as well. And now my new trio tapestry, which I've established now with ECM is just the most recent uh, approach and concept that I'm uh, that I have developed through the years. You know, the Garden of Expression is that leftovers from the original session, or were you able to be in the same room because of COVID? You know, that's an interesting because uh, we recorded Trio Tapestry the first for the first release in the studio in New York. And we recorded that in 2018, I think. And since that time, through from through 2018 and 19, we toured Europe maybe three times, did a, a Village Vanguard in New York and a bunch of dates in the States on the West Coast and uh, at SF Jazz and uh, different festivals. And uh, the music that I wrote for Garden of Expression all came from the touring and presenting the music from the first trio tapestry. And one of the tunes on the first trio tapestry release was called Seeds of Change. 
And it was a, uh, an idea about playing with piano and percussion and saxophone with no bass and how we could play in a tapestry of sounds and harmonies and melodies and rhythms, you know, and create the music as we flowed. Garden of Expression, for me, that even that title is some of the blossoms that have developed from the seeds of change from the first record, you know? So all of those compositions came together. Uh, and then we were on tour in November of 2019 when we recorded Garden of Expression. So we recorded that before the pandemic, you know? in Europe and in, in uh, the radio recordings uh, studio, which is a, uh, a recital hall sound stage. It's not, you're not in a studio confined space. It was in a recital hall, which gave it that open, beautiful sound, which we had a chance the night before the recording, we played a concert for a full audience and uh, felt that stage sound and the way we played as a trio with no PA system. And so the next day when we came in to do the date, we just kind of reconfigured on stage and we were really comfortable in the room, which was also part of uh, the way we played together for that date, you know? You couldn't tell that that's a soundstage, the way that that was mic'd. It feels like it's a studio sound almost. The one thing working with Manfred Eicher and ECM Records, uh, the difference between the like Blue Note sound and the ECM sound in their in the approach, you know, the concept. Mm -hmm. Blue Note records are like uh, nightclub sound. ECM recordings are more like a recital hall sound. So you play with a different attitude and approach when you're playing in those kind of uh, atmospheric uh, feelings, you know? Uh, one more goofier question here. What is your drug of choice? Food, caffeine, uh, <laughs> liquor? This is an open-ended question. Let, let's see how you riff on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I enjoy my espresso, my Italian espressos, especially after touring around the world and uh, having the opportunity to really taste some different uh, coffees around the world. The Italian espresso when you're in Milan airport or Rome airport is some of the best coffee you could ever have, you know? So that's high standard you're always kind of searching for. So that is definitely one. And I enjoy uh, uh, my cognac every now and then also. And during this period, actually, this pandemic time where you're not touring, you're, you're home. Uh, my wife, Judy, and I have been cooking for each other and really cooking together at times. And uh, it, that's been really fun. 
to try to, you know, improvise and create uh, some meals for each other. You know, you go shopping specifically to try to put together something different from last night or whatever, you know? So that's been fun. Yeah, it's probably the first time that you've been home for so long. And I did look at your your relationship with your wife, horoscopes wise, and you guys are extremely compatible. I guess after 1984, 1986, if it hasn't worked yet, you'd know by now. <laughs> we, we were we got together around 1981, and we were we got married in '84. And Judy is like an amazing artist and musician, composer, and uh, she went to Temple University. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Philly, and uh, she's from Philly, and came to New York around the same time I did, 1976 or so, and she was in the dance, modern dance world also, as far as well as um, in the music world uh, as a musician. She was part of the Alvin Nikolai Murray Lewis dance school, I would say. So when we met, you know, she brought me and introduced me to a whole modern dance world in New York City, which was amazing. And how it, it was also like it had the deep passion and love that was going on within their community, as well as what I was experiencing in the jazz and music community, you know. Uh, so we got together at the, at the very beginning in a real beautiful, creative uh, atmosphere and environment and it's just been carrying on through all these years you know she's been a part of some of my um, recordings that really established a sound with woodwinds voice brass percussion and strings Uh, she is the kind of musician that could be in a session under uh, Gunther Schuller's conducting and writing for example I'm my recording Rush Hour, uh, where she could vocalize and interpret parts with the string section or with the woodwind section, as well as stepping out front as a soloist and a, a singer of words, a storyteller. So in that world, she's like really uh, involved and always developing. And uh also as an artist, as a painter, she's been painting and doing some beautiful things uh, in, in that uh, medium. And uh, that's been real inspired. During this time, we've done quite a few live streams from our home, our studio, um, to raise money for different um, you know, organizations. We, we played for the DC Jazz Festival, the first virtual festival. We did a taping and a recording for that uh, where we do, we play duets and uh, Judy paints a painting while we're also improvising this music. And uh, that's been really fun. We just did one for the Panama Festival that was just aired, I think in mid-January. That, also. That- you're not you know. the first person that uh, I'm hearing that where they sell the painting after the, the the set is over at the end of the night. She signs it off and sells it, right? That could happen, you know. I she's uh, she's donated a few, and uh, yeah, her paintings are available. By the way, on her website, she has an Etsy store and all. JudySilvano.com, I guess, is her, but J U D I 
silvano.com. She has uh, she has a lot of her works uh, where people could come and view them, you know. But but doing those live streams have been really inspiring throughout this period, you know, and uh, preparing for them, putting a special repertoire together to play a 45 or a 70 minute through composed set, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm playing many different instruments, a tenor saxophone and bass clarinet, and a C melody saxophone, and mezzo soprano, some percussion and gongs and some drums. And, and Judy also plays like alto recorder and some percussion instruments and uh, balafone. Uh, so we we've put uh, we put a few through composed sets that have been really inspiring and uh, kind of creating a way of playing and improvising together. Mm. That feels really good. Sounds like a future album. Well, we have uh, we've documented some things through the years, and definitely we we're, we're working on a repertoire of new works from this period. You know, this is a defining moment for everyone on the planet. Yeah, I, I really want to emerge with a, a body of work that represents this this period, you know, in our life, socially and everything else, you know. In the world, right? Where where do you see us at as a society? Well, you know, you want to uh, stay positive and hope that uh, everything can come together in the beautiful light and. Uh, life is full of mysteries and it's how you embrace things so to make it a better world and make yourself a better person takes a lot of self uh, reflection and um, you know that's that's something that's a mysterious thing you know uh, to be in tune with the the universe and the cosmos uh is a is a way of meditating and playing music. So for me, it's all about vibrating on tonalities and trying to make everything as one. You know, in my in my approach as a player, uh, to be able to embrace all things and and to be able to shape music from the inside out. You know, who you're playing with to try to feel each other's feelings, to create a new music within whatever kind of song it might be. You might play a tune that was written 90 years ago, but still play it as new music with the right attitude and approach. And that's the challenge and the beauty of jazz. That's what jazz uh, is all about, is self-expression and, um, to play with the wisdom that you develop and the knowledge you develop through the years, you know, uh, and, and meditating on those things, you know? So I, I'm real optimistic that uh, this period will, will bring forth some um, more love and compassion for all folks, you know? I cannot um, stump you. These, these, uh, some of these questions are. <laughs> I got okay. <laughs> so you know, just the. I know I'm, I'm almost winding up. We're talking about the album, and I'm, uh, but <laughs> the, uh, the eight, the '80s, that early '80s that you were in there, to me, uh, 
what a in New York City, what a dream time to be alive and to be in that era where all the creatives were there, like the it was the place to be. And everyone was young and and uh, imaginative and you know, I, I believe that there'll be movies in the future about the Renaissance time period of what New York was like back then. It was also very dangerous and scary and, and going bankrupt. And, you know, you could, be, <laughs> you could be murdered at any time, but that added to the that added to the value. Plus, it was affordable, which it obviously isn't now. So I believe like kids are always chasing that dream of of that time period and going to New York looking for that kind of experience that doesn't exist anymore. So I, I think it's a magical time that you were able to land there at that time. You know, I think like uh, the whole, uh, the world, it just keeps going on and on, you know? It's like, you could say that about the 52nd Street period also, you know, there's, but there's, some, there's things happening today uh, in communities in Brooklyn or, and in New York that also have this kind of energy and uh, life force. When you're in your early 20s, you make things happen no matter where you are. That's right. And I moved to New York uh, in 1976. I was like 23. But I had come to New York the two years prior to that on tour with Dr. Lonnie Smith and brother Jack McDuff. and we, I was on tour with them throughout the Chitlin circuit in the States and, uh, and then coming to New York to record and to play. And uh, I played in, in Baltimore, speaking of Baltimore, which you haven't mentioned too much, at the Left Bank Jazz Society there. Yeah. I had a yeah. chance to play there with Brother Jack McDuff in 1975, was the first time. And then with the Woody Herman Band after that. And, and that crowd and that whole atmosphere was so great. When I just played at the Keystone last March, right around this time, right? Because uh, I brought that up, you know, when I spoke to the crowd and uh, was introducing the band and what we were playing. And I, I told the audience how much Baltimore meant to me coming and playing at the left bank. Uh, for the Left Bank Jazz Society at the famous ballroom mm-hmm. concerts were, you know. And, uh, you know, when you tour and you, and you come to New York before you move there and try to live there and integrate into the scene, you know, that was exciting. Yeah. Coming to town, going to the Village Vanguard here in Dexter Gordon and uh, going uh, to different clubs I always had my horn with me and uh, went and sat in with Rashid Ali. He had a place, Ali's Alley, down in Soho on Green Street, which was a loft kind of a situation. There was no liquor, but it was a a space where he was playing all the time and different things would happen, you know? I met him after hearing, listening to him with Coltrane on all those uh, beautiful recordings, you know? that he's on uh, meditations and interstellar space and uh, some of the things in the, the last few years of Coltrane's recorded life and, and life. Uh, going and playing with him and meeting him and being in the room with that. Or going to Sam Rivers. Sam Rivers had a place called Studio Rivby, 
on Bond Street where he lived upstairs also. And, uh, but there was a storefront that was a music venue. I first heard Anthony Braxton and Sam Rivers and uh, Dave Holland and all kinds of folks there, you know, before I moved to New York. And then once I really did, uh, so yeah, the city, there was a lot of things happening in, in the late seventies. And then of course, in the eighties, when I established myself really on the scene and joined the Mel Lewis Jazz Orchestra, 1980, uh, with Thad, you know, Thad Jones had just moved to Copenhagen. Bob Brookmeyer was there with, with Mel, um, adding new repertoire to the famous book, the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band that is still going on today. Uh, now, of course, there has been no live gigs since last March, but uh, when the Vanguard does come back, there's going to be a Monday night Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. <laughs> that's, uh, that's still with us, you know. I'm optimistic that the, the club scene is going to come back, but it's, it's, it's going to take a minute to unravel uh, where people are traveling around the world and um, enjoying coming to New York and being there for the arts, you know. But yeah, New York City, man, through all the years has been a, a lot of gravity, a lot of gravity in New York City for the, for the music world and community of the arts.
the last song on the album, Zen Like. Yeah, gongs from the last album. And it, it looks uh -huh. like a, a continuation on. Yeah, you know, the gong, the whole thing with gongs for me started 1977. My first tour to Europe with, with Woody's band. We played in London at Ronnie Scott's. And uh, Ronnie Scott's in Soho there in London is right next to Chinatown. So I went for walks and uh, we were staying in that area at the time also with the band. There was an amazing percussion music shop, Rayman's Music, with all Oriental instruments, stringed instruments, flutes, and percussion and gongs. And that's when I first uh, acquired my first couple gongs, was on that tour, mm -hmm. 1977. So then, uh, through the years, I've been developing a way of playing where I accompany myself with a mallet in my right hand and um, playing the gongs, uh, attacking the gongs for, for pitches and for rhythm with my right hand as I'm playing the saxophone with my left hand and uh, coordinating the timing, you know? So the, the, on Trio Tapestry, the first piece is called One Time In, it's a scored piece of melodies and moments where I strike the gong. I wanted to write a piece and not just improvise a piece so that I could make takes on it if I wanted to. And that Manfred would hear a piece of music beyond just uh, an improvised piece of music. Like I was improvising, of course, but there was a, there was a melodies and things that uh, I was... Uh, interpreting as well you know so the the whole gong approach has been in my music through the years there's quite a few documents on uh, blue note records also playing some gongs universal language is one recording and uh, uh, flights of fancy duets with gonzalo rubalcalba I play some percussion and drums and gongs on that, you know. So they, they're, it's kind of always with me, you know. Um, so it, this trio with no bass gives room for other kind of tonalities and different things to happen uh, without the bass kind of driving the momentum uh, in the music. When that space is open, then other things have to uh not not take its place, but other things surface that shape the music from inside, and that's uh, that's the joy of playing with this trio. Also, dream on that to me feels just like an improv jam. Is that uh, it just you rip that out and it, it just kind of happened, or or was that something well, that you played the night before?
dream on that is a, is a tune that's scored out like a lead sheet, like a, like a song, but it, but it's, uh, it's written with a real open approach with no bar lines or anything, you know, it's just a sequence of tonalities and chords that we shape as we play on it, you know, and, uh, we stretch out on it a lot more on the gig, the recording, it, it was a shorter take because Manfred's focus is to make an LP. He doesn't want like a 60 minute or 70 minute CD recording. He wants a, a an LP length. Yeah. So like 45 minutes or so. That's and that's all the music that you even record. You just focus on uh, the LP and then a CD comes out from that. But his he's turned his focus around to recording enough material for uh, an LP. So a lot of the tunes are condensed and shortened for to, to fit different, as many compositions that are on there for an LP length, you know. Uh, but that particular tune, Dream On That, uh, came together in a real interesting way, man, because uh, I guess it was around 2013 or so during Wayne Shorter's 80th year anniversary. Mm -hmm. I was my band Sound Prince uh, with Dave Douglas. We were on tour with Wayne, you know, uh, touring on this amazing moment when he turned 80 with his quartet and also a trio with Terry Lynn Carrington and Esperanza Spaulding and Jerry Allen. They were playing trio also. So it was like kind of three bands. Anyway, one of the dressing rooms, I had just got this new horn, this G mezzo soprano. And I brought it to Wayne's dressing room to show him this horn. And uh, so I played it for him for a second. And then he picked up his soprano and we played an improvisation, just two sopranos in his dressing room. And uh, it was short, you know, maybe 50 seconds a minute, maybe a minute. And we harmonized and we hit this last note together. And he looked at me, he goes, I'm going to dream on that. Ah. <laughs> and that title stayed with me, you know, something Wayne said about this moment in some, something we had played. And uh, for me, it was a thrill to play a little duet with him, whether nobody else heard it except us. But it was like a, a big moment for me, you know, in the music. And uh, I kept that title in mind. And I, when I wrote this piece, I put that title dedicated to Wayne Shorter, man. He's like one of the most uh, amazing musicians of all time and has contributed so much yeah. to the music and humanity. He's a treasure. You know? yeah. The chapel song, you are playing back and forth and all of a sudden it breaks into like a little classical piano solo towards the end. It's very surprising. Thank you. 
Yeah. Well, Marilyn Crispell is, is also someone that's one of the most uh, amazing, beautiful musicians in, in jazz and in music, you know? Mm-hmm. And she brings to each tune uh, a really uh, an amazing approach that comes from within the tune, but yet she tells her story within the story of the song as well. And the way she took it at that moment um, was really poignant and beautiful, you know? But she, she does that with every piece. Yeah, because she listens. She really is. A, she listens and she contributes uh, within the feeling and the mood of what's happening, and not just sitting playing the piano. You know that I felt that your uh, your sound had a Ben Webster warmth to it throughout this album, and uh, it's funny. Like the the album gets more and more like free jazz towards the end, more and more avant garde, just slightly. I like to think of it as jazz free. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Where you're really flowing in a jazz way and, and improvising, creating music from within the feeling of jazz, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, also playing the C soprano saxophone and the terragato at times, uh, like on Zen like, and also the one piece treasured moments. Those other colors really, uh, I think, uh, just kind of open open the the palette for different things to happen mm-hmm. in the band and for us when we're playing also the different colors that are there but just in the the energy of those tonalities on those other instruments uh, really feel good and fuel different ideas to happen in the music so, so in a way what you're you're hearing is some some sustained moments with those higher instruments and, um, you know, from the, from where the tenor was, you know, but thanks for your comment about Ben Webster. Cause he looms large, man. Oh yeah. All of us. If you're hip to. Uh, yeah. Really- now, I would be able to mix a Ben Webster song right after these songs. Hmm. Cause I feel that they, they kind of are entwined. Uh, it would be a good set. I think. Um, oh wow beautiful thank you yeah now i've done this 20 questions with people before Uh, i did it with christian sands he had a blast with it sean jones had a blast billy child he hated it Uh he he thought it was was the worst he he softened up towards the 20th question but (laughs) you took this in a whole different direction we do a long form so on youtube you'll hear our whole conversation oh okay and so people are going to be like what is what is his questions? What are these? Do, what what is going on here? So you've exceeded, that gonna say what, what's Levano talking about? You're yeah. you're you exceeded my expectations, and I, I really think you're a good sport for it. So I appreciate it. Um, but uh, it's a it's a great album, and I, it sounds like there's more to come. And uh, once COVID's over, I think we're going to get a, a a wealth of material from you. That's uh, uh, the brimming and ready to go. So that's exciting too. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to re-establishing uh, another concert setting at the Keystone Corner. Oh my God. Baltimore. I, I, I love that place so much. And the food is good too. And uh, oh yeah, the whole atmosphere is great. And all the videos on the breaks. Also, Todd has a wealth of uh, material and ideas and a deep passion for all the musicians and the players and the audience. And he really wants to share his life with everybody. And it's great. Uh, 
I remember seeing McCoy and all kind of different videos that he was playing on our breaks. That was really fantastic. He's one of those guys that are more down to earth than he has to be. You know, he has, he's a very cool guy and very approachable. Uh, yeah. He's, he's the guy. My concern is that, you know, uh, there's rumors and concerns that, you know, uh, a lot of venues may, you know, go under with this, this time period. That's a high rent district. He has, that wasn't open that long. So we, we hope, we hope the best that I do believe exactly what you think. People are going to be really desperate to get out and connect and realize that, you know, seeing live music is really important. I know, I know I will, I'll be out more than I ever was. I'm not going to pass things up anymore. Uh, If I see a live show, I want to go, I'm going, you know. Definitely. Oh yeah. Cause there's nothing like being in the room with the spirits of the players. That's right. The people, you know, it's, it all goes together. So Joe, thank you very much for joining me on something came from Baltimore. Uh, I think I had more of a blast than you did. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the opportunity, man. Yeah. Yeah. Loved it. All right. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Be well and uh, hope to see you. uh, When we can gather, we will. Yeah, very soon. I'm crossing my fingers. All right, cool. All right, you have a great day. Easy now. All right, right. bye-bye. hope you enjoyed the interview tonight on something came from baltimore please subscribe and flip it to five people who love music uh, i'm not connected with the podcast companies and i am not easily found in the algorithm so i really need your help to get the word out we need you to be a part of that be more music scene something came from baltimore, 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 baltimore. something came from baltimore, 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 baltimore.